0: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. We currently have a bonus episode about baseball movies with one on the way in which Scott and I talk about introducing great and sometimes not so great movies to our children, and another episode about Hamilton, the movie, or whatever they're calling it. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. show
1: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past
2: is not through with us!
0: Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie that we've podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Kosky Tasha Robinson
3: and Scott Tobias
0: with American Movie Theaters largely closed, we're continuing to focus on quarantinement. pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're going to be discussing a pair of funny movies that put songs in our hearts as we sing the praises wait, of- Wait, wait,
2: wait, 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 Keith. We're not literally singing, right?
0: Uh, what do you mean?
2: I mean, as part of this intro, you're not going to make us sing. Look, I am not scanning down the script right now to find, bracket, Tasha breaks into song, close bracket. I am not doing that.
0: Okay, you're firm on that. Yes. Okay, as I was saying, we'll be singing the praises of a pair of funny movies with music. Scott, can you tell us about what we have planned? Sure
3: thing. Uh, Keith, it looks like you just deleted Tasha Breaks into Song and replaced it with Scott Breaks into Song. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm with Tasha. People do not subscribe to this podcast to hear us try to sing, let alone hear us try to sing Ya Ya Ding Dong.
0: Uh, So you're passing to Genevieve? Uh, nope, nope, not me. And you're all in agreement that I should replace the lyrics I've written for a song parody set to the tune of Old Town Road with some more straightforward text? None of you want to sing? Going to take my song to the Eurovision Song Contest? Going to sing till I'm named the best? No. no, no absolutely no. not. Just okay.
2: No circumstances.
0: No. Okay, okay, Genevieve, can you pause the recording? Okay, we're back. Tasha, can you tell us what we'll be talking about on this episode and the next one? Yes, but I'm going to do this as tunelessly as possible.
2: Since 1956, the Eurovision Song Contest has pitted an assortment of countries, largely but not exclusively from Europe, against each other to determine who can perform the year's best original song. Some notable past winners have included ABBA, Celine Dion, Lulu, Katrina on the Waves, and the makeup-clad Finnish metal band, Lordi. Though this year's contest has been canceled for the first time since Eurovision began, that didn't stop the release of the movie Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams as a pair of lifelong friends whose music duo, Fire Saga, makes an unlikely play for the title. Eurovision put us in mind of another music-filled comedy, A Mighty Wind, the third in a series of improv-heavy comedies directed by Christopher Guest and starring a cast of ensemble players. It's set against the backdrop of another sort of performance, a tribute concert that brings together veterans of New York's folk revival scene.
0: So this week we're going to sway to the music of the folksmen, the Main Street Singers, and the new Main Street Singers, and Mitch and Mickey. The next week we'll make our way from Húselvik on Iceland's northern coast to the bright lights of Edinburgh for the Eurovision Song Contest. Finally, in the news tonight, the music world mourns the death of folk music icon Irving Steinblum. Steinblum managed the careers of the Main Street singers, the Folksmen, and Mitch and Mickey. The only fitting tribute that that we could come up with was a memorial concert. I'd like to think that Mitch would agree to do this, because I already said yes. Where else could we have such an event, the town hall? We're very pleased to be having the folk people here. The acoustics are, are just perfect.
2: Well, there's a puppy in the parlor a
0: you went to the record store you knew that the new folksman album would be one, one word, word title itching uh, wishing rambling singing but uh, they had no uh they had no hole in the center of the records and, uh, and yeah, if you punched a hole in them that. you'd have a good time yeah
2: it's
1: <laughs> just that My dad, Fred Knox, was an original Main Street singer.
0: He's a dead person now, but when he was alive, he was so happy.
3: There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. In
0: 1979, Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, and Michael McKean introduced the world to Spinal Tap, a hapless British heavy metal trio that go on to play in the 1984 mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. Covering the band's slow, painful, funny dissolution and last-minute resurrection over the course of its 1982 tour of the United States, the Rob Reiner-directed film won praise for its improv approach and for its painfully accurate depiction of the music business. When McKean guested it on Saturday Night Live that same year, during a season of ringers that found both Shearer and Guest joining the cast for one-year stints, they unveiled another musical trio drawn from a different branch of the music world, The Folksmen, who were reuniting for the first time since a brief moment in the sun as part of the early 60s folk revival. On a 2009 tour that found Guest, Shearer, and McKean playing music from both Spinal Tap and The Folksman, Shearer called the band's songs a parody of, quote, the fake folk music being written in office buildings in Manhattan's Upper West Side. That assessment sounds far harsher than the actual depiction of The Folksman on Starry Live, or the broader swath of the folk revival scene depicted in A Mighty Wind the guest-directed 2003 film that brought back the folksmen and introduced some contemporaries as they participated in a memorial concert for the music producer that started all of their careers. The film freely points out some of the scene's absurd elements, starting with the artificiality Sheer notes. Inspired by crossover pop acts like the Kingston Trio, the Main Street singers happily court pop success, whether by swapping out old members with new ones or hooking up with the enthusiastic but shameless manager Mike LaFontaine. Played by Fred Willard. Talking Heads discuss the kiss at the end of the song A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, performed by the duo Mitch and Mickey, played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, as if it had the historical importance of the Battle of Hastings. It's an insular world that can't see its own ridiculousness, much like the worlds depicted in Guest's two previous films, Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. But also, as in those films, there's a lot more going on. Co-writing with Levy and, as always, working in collaboration with his performers, Guest brings a tremendous sense of affection and understanding to the film. The folks may not have any claim to authenticity, but they love playing music and they play it well. And over the course of the film, they also play out an understated subplot about what it means to be in a creative partnership over a long period of time, even one that's laying dormant for years. That's even more pronounced in the scenes involving Mickey and Mitch, who experience the painful breakup of both their professional and romantic relationships spurred by Mitch's mental illness. The music might be fake, insofar as that term has any meaning when it comes to music, but what it means to their characters and their audience is anything but. Also, the characters can really sing and play, and the music they make is pretty lovely. Even those Main Street singer sellouts can carry a tune. The goal in This Is Spinal Tap was to create workmanlike hard rock that only revealed its silly excesses to those who paid attention. The songs in The Mighty Wind captures much of what was appealing about the folk revival, even as it tweaks the movement for its repackaging of folk elements. There are many folk songs about train wrecks and mining disasters, for instance, but only the folksman's Blood and the Coal has both. The song's infectious, though, and like the movie around it, you can laugh at it, but that doesn't mean it won't get stuck in your head. Let's start right out. Hey, what happened? As you know, back in 1970, I start on a series called What Happened?
1: And every time something would go wrong, I would look at the camera and say, Hey, what happened? We had a lot of fun with that and a lot of other catchphrases. I
0: got a real red wagon (laughs) and uh, I can't do my work. And I believe I was the first one to use the phrase, I don't think so. But it only lasted a year. And that's good because that's how you establish a cult. All right. So uh, same question as usual. What's everyone's history with this film?
4: I watched it along with Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman in college in sort of a weekend binge of all three films mm. and I haven't revisited it since then. In the ensuing years I think all of like this era of guest films kind of just merged into sort of a, a murky lump of improv comedy. So like I didn't have very strong memories of it but I had like strong affection for it because I watched it as part of that collective and you you know, it's a very good trio of films. I never did see um, For Your Consideration, so I can't speak to how that fits in here. You're, you're okay. Yeah, it's it's good, fine. That's kind of what I heard.
3: It's better than the than mascots. mascots.
4: But yeah, so revisiting it, I was definitely excited to go back to it. And I was a little surprised how kind of not, biting it was like it felt more gentle than i remembered guest films being from this era and um i'm kind of curious to go back to watch guffman and best in show to see if i have that same reaction but There's still like so much to like about this film, but I found myself getting really hung up on Mitch and Mickey at the center of it. Like, and maybe this is colored by having recently seen Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara in Schitt's Creek, where they also play a couple that I am. Just now, <laughs> realizing our named Rose uh possibly very probably in tribute to this film, but the performance they give here is just so much well, not levy's <laughs> performance it is very um not subdued in many ways, but there's there's just like again sort of a gentleness to their relationship, a, a sweetness to it that feels I don't want to say out of place but just not kind of what I associate with a lot of guests' humor. And I have to say, I, I I was not really enamored of Levy's performance here as Mitch. I thought it was a silly voice and, uh, you know, big eyes and not a whole lot else. And they are sort of the heart of the movie. So like I said, I got a little hung up on it. I was not like over the moon for it, I'm sad to say this time around. But like I said, I still have a lot of affection for this film within sort of the trilogy of guests and this uh, ensemble.
3: I would say, you know, I saw it when it came out, and I, I liked it. I think I remember liking it, but not thinking a, a tremendous amount about it. it. It seemed like of those first three movies of Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show and, and A Mighty Win, that Best in Show over the years has gotten the most attention, and certainly the most attention from me. You know, It's it's a very funny, rewatchable film, and I hadn't really felt much of an urge until, you know, being prompted by the show to return to Mighty Wind. But um, all the things you're saying, Genevieve, are things I ended up really loving about it, mm-hmm. watching it this second time. Gentle's a good word for it. And I think Guest and company are kind of smart in understanding that they can't approach this world in the way that they could the rock world in This is Spinal mm-hmm. Tap. And because so the Spinal Tap is exposing some excesses that are often quite ugly and to go too far in that direction in the world of folk which is basically a bunch of modest earnest folkies would be a little much and so I think I think the film is really perfectly judged in that respect and I just I don't know I was really moved by it I, I was like I was in tears watching this film like it put the payoff of that Mitch and Mickey's song it just it got me it really did and um, and I just I found the whole thing to be very warm-hearted and well-balanced I, I, I liked it
4: I don't disagree and I don't want to sound like I didn't like this film it just wasn't as uproariously funny as I think I was going into it expecting it to be based on the film we're pairing it with and sort of those you know muddled memories of these three films taken together
0: I think you're right, though, because my impression—I saw each of these as they came out, and my impression was that each one got like a little more emotional depth to it. I mean, Best in Show, you know, there's there's not a lot that's going to leave Scott in tears in that one, but but there's there's a little more going on with characters than Waiting for Guffman, and this one is deeper still, and I felt like. At the time, it feels like the Mission Mickey stuff was really kind of daring, like almost like an experiment to see like can we actually get some moving material in this, like some really heartfelt stuff. And and I know Levy's performance is big, but it reminds me so much of other like rock music casualties i mean he's not that far off from how brian wilson actually behaves um mm-hmm. or 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 you know I, I there's not a lot of footage of sid barrett later in life that i know of but i mean just sort of like the stories you read about say like a, like a sid barrett or something this is it kind of tracks with all that as well as well and I, th- I actually think it really worked uh, too so i think I, I you know push comes to shove i think best in shows is, is my favorite because i think it's the best balance of of uh, of characters and really outright uh, funny moments, but um, I I really admire this film.
2: This wasn't my first uh, Christopher Guest-directed film. I, I saw the big picture... Uh, much earlier than this but this was actually the first of the sort of improv ensemble comedies of his that i saw and i (laughs) loved this movie so much when i first saw it i mean i grew up on folk music my parents were 60s hippies we literally had albums in the house of uh, the kingston trio like they took me to see peter paul and mary live multiple times when i was a kid did any so, of these records
0: that you have to actually punch a hole in the middle yourself, or is that uh... I, you know they would just tear wildly? <laughs> that so in the That's
4: maybe my favorite joke in the entire movie, and it's oh, right at the
2: beginning. We definitely have to talk about favorite jokes in the movies because there sure. there are so many like great one liners, and they're all delivered in, almost exactly like that. You know, except for a, a very few of the performers, everybody has that kind of like over the top faux sincerity and the the yes ending of improv where like no ridiculous statement is too outrageous and and that's that's what i love about this like having grown up on this music i loved the music in this movie it was exactly I'm not going to say it was my jam, I guess, because you can't really jam to this music. But it was uh, <laughs> no, just a no, huge...
4: shows goes pretty hard. <laughs>
2: mm, I mean, if you're going to get down on the dance floor, it's probably going to be The Skeletons of Quinto. But uh, that's that's as maybe. Yeah. I, I, I ended up with the album of this, and I listened to it over and over and over. Like I was utterly addicted to the music. And like, I, I went and saw it, Waiting for Guffman and, and Best in Show shortly thereafter, like hoping for something I would connect with in the same way. And I, I just didn't because I didn't have the same kind of connection to the material. Rewatching it this time, I was actually kind of surprised and, and disappointed. I think when I first saw it, an awful lot of the really good gags are in the music and are just like the surprises of the grimness of skeletons of quinto or uh, blood (laughs) blood on the coals like just ridiculous gag about uh, a guy trying to stop the the train and immediately squishes him or uh never did no wandering's line about uh the 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 railroad man from the west of hell where trains don't even run just like all of these ridiculous gags ensconced in music When I was familiar with all the music, they didn't pop in in quite the same way. And there are some kind of dead spots in this movie. But that said, man, that laugh when Michael Hitchcock is trying to explain stagecraft to a, like an increasingly anxious and offended Bob Balaban, and he finally just breaks with exasperation and bops him on the on the top of the head. Like you just you can't beat that. It made me laugh again this time, and then I went back and rewatched it again, and it just it made me laugh all over again. Apparently, if you listen to the commentary track, the second after that happened, like in the film, you literally get every usable frame of film of that happening because after that like the casting crew just completely <laughs> lost it so they had to cut it so my experience all of this boils down to my experience this time didn't live up to my first experience but like my first experience was just like everybody everybody here is kind of a genius except eugene levy
4: <laughs> uh, I, saw, I I saw you nodding when I was saying that so I'm I'm looking forward to
2: you agreeing with me here. <laughs> yeah, it just it feels to me like so most of the humor like I am I am a humongous nerd. And as such, I'm in a lot of different humongous nerd scenes. And I think the thing that Christopher Guest captures in like all of these improv movies, maybe that's where, for your consideration, went wrong, is it just doesn't feel like it's capturing a tiny little insular scene where everybody takes themselves incredibly seriously in the same way Best in Show and Waiting for Govman and A Mighty Wind all do. But that self-seriousness and self-importance and inability to see past your own navel is just so much a hallmark of like small creative or competitive scenes. And his films nail it so well. So I just, I find, for instance, Jane Lynch's performance, where she's very clearly playing a personality, but she takes herself very seriously. And she's doing something that's comedic, but it's, it's dialed down at the same time. Like, I find that so much funnier than Eugene Levy's, like, big, maybe it's Brian Wilson. I've seen him compared to, like, later Bob Dylan. Uh, there's a bunch of debate about what exactly that accent is that he's supposed to be doing. I just found it distracting. It, it took me out of a movie that in an awful lot of ways was, so convincing that a lot of the humor comes out of like whenever they break outside the little mold of plausibility that they're constantly recreating just every time something really funny happens it's because you're kind of being lulled into a sense of of mockumentary security and then somebody breaks it eugene levy is like out
0: there on the borderlands the whole time Hmm, Boy, I don't, this I don't is... know. Yeah, that's it's not how I see it. It's like, yeah. a, I, I, we, we have a, a <laughs> peek behind the curtain here, uh, we have a series of, of questions written out that we're going to discuss, and one of those is, uh, I've written out is, there's real depth to Levy and Noah's performances. <laughs> <laughs> does yeah. that ever threaten to overwhelm the comedy? But I feel like we're kind of on a different track no. here, but I guess well, we can okay. kind of, we can kind of rephrase that as like, does, does the fact that there is so much pathos and, uh, you know, real kind of drama to that relationship, however it's played, does that ever threaten to overwhelm the comedy for anyone else?
2: It really doesn't for me, because I, to me, what's fun about this movie is that you have three different folk bands. They have such different personalities. They have such different musical approaches. They have such different artistic approaches. They have such different approaches to rehearsals. And then they have differing levels. Like the new main street singers are just like the series of surreal jokes and the folksmen actually feel like a working band. And then Mitch and Mickey have this like emotional drama. I like that those are that radically different and that they're all different tones. I think it gives the movie more texture than if they tried to keep everything super light. It also really feels like it's tapping into a lot of the emotional drama of uh, both the music world and just like the folk scene.
3: I think it's such a confident film in the sense that it doesn't push for jokes when they're not there. Nothing feels strained about it to me, which is a tough thing to pull off in improvisational form because it's kind of, you know, I think you do always kind of want to go for the joke. And this film modulates tone so beautifully. And I think that's a difficult thing to do in this type of improvisational ensemble. And I just, I you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean that. I I love the Eugene Levy performance. I love that relationship. I love what it brings to the movie. And I just, and the Brian Wilson comparison really hit me because uh, this is extra textual. But I spent time with Brian Wilson when he was with when he came. He, I hosted a screening with him and Cusack for that biopic. What was that called? The Brian. What, oh, yeah. that? what was it
0: called? Something and something. Lo- something. Love, yeah, love, love and something mercy. And I'm okay. In. <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah. So uh, I spent time with Brian Wilson and John Cusack when they were touring with Love and Mercy. They did this big event at Music Box, and there was just a lot of time, basically the, during the entire film as it was playing, where I was just with the two of them. And you know, I mean, obviously Brian Wilson is, you know, is is had been through a lot and couldn't communicate as you would expect. I mean, uh, noticeably, if you've ever, ever seen him perform, I'm sure it's the same way. And you know, I think Levy. Maybe he overplays a little bit, but he gives that kind of impression. You just get this sense of a such a broken person and broken relationship, and but also something that can't be helped. I mean, you know, I mean, there may have been a time. I mean, O'Hara kind of gives you, kind of fills in certain gaps in that, in, in kind of explains that relationship through her feelings about him, kind of pulling away or always being at this distance from her, and you could see Levy trying to bridge that distance as hard as he possibly can and it's and it's just nearly impossible for him to do it but then he does it you know I mean you know you think of the scene towards the end where he kind of gets lost and ends up coming back with a rose and then and then they complete the number at the end of the way they're supposed to complete it and then that's it that's the best that he can do and it's really extraordinary that he can do it and the film you know sets all that up quite nicely I think yeah I I just I, I love that part of the movie
0: Scott, I don't want to upstage you, but I I once saw Brian Wilson eating at Denny's.
4: Really?
3: <laughs> Did he eat in a way that was that was like, hmm? Uh,
0: no, not
4: really. Okay. I think what I don't want to say what bugs me about Levy's performance, but I think what kind of just like sticks out about it to me is that it feels like it requires o'hara to do a lot of the work to fill in the gaps and he's kind of doing this more i don't i don't want to say one note but like the the comedy can we say f-
0: sticky uh, yeah sticky okay. I'll, is I'll, the I'll, word I'll, that works I'll, for I'll, me i'll, t- I'll take I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't see this ever. oh boy
4: It just it does feel like he's kind like comedically speaking. And and again, I don't disagree that there is a lot of pathos in that relationship. And that is its own virtue. But approaching this as a comedy, I think that what Levy has committed to doing over and over again throughout this film, it doesn't give O'Hara a lot of opportunity to do comedic work of her own. I feel like she is a little bit of a support narratively. Like I said, she has to fill in the gaps of this relationship. And she doesn't get to be particularly funny doing that. And I will freely admit that this reaction is probably colored by my love of Schitt's Creek and their relationship there, which is very different from this, but is much more on a similar plane comedically than I think they are here.
0: If we can do a quick podcast within the podcast. So I started Schitt's Creek and I liked it, but I I wasn't quite grooving on it. So is there a point where it gets really, really uh, exceptional?
4: Um, I'd say second season, okay. midway yeah. through the second season. Once Mutt is no longer uh, around, I think it takes a little bit to find its groove. But okay.
2: I- maybe it's just a, a point of comparison. But I mean, some of my favorite stuff in this movie, some of my favorite performances in this movie, just amount to like very subtle facial work. John Michael Higgins, like the way he looks strained and trapped. Whenever Jane Lynch is talking about her past in porn, or maybe maybe bring up a little too much about their their weird color religion or whatnot. Like, he doesn't stop smiling for the cameras, but you can just see in his eyes that he's thinking, oh, honey, please don't like a a thing that he's almost too nice to think, let alone say. And it's just, it's really subtle. One of my favorite gags in this entire movie is Don Lake's character, the sibling who hates folk music. They keep cutting to the audience during the final mm-hmm. concert <laughs> where all this this folk is going on and he doesn't say anything. But every time we look at the audience, he's impatiently perusing his program or like uncomfortably recrossing his legs. You can just tell that he's bored out of his mind and trying to be polite. Compared to those performances that are just like so wordless and physical and minor and and drawn in like I I just feel like Levy's too big for this movie can I
4: tell you probably the person who made me laugh most in this movie and she's maybe in it for three scenes is Jennifer Coolidge (laughs) because talk about face acting just her being Hmm. makes me laugh in most movies but in this one especially
2: See she's the other person in this movie that I consider too big and too sticky. They just like there's so little the of her. She's just a seasoning. That's just it. It's yeah. it's a tiny seasoning and also that line where she's where she's uh, telling the model train enthusiast that uh, it's great that we have the little model trains because otherwise people wouldn't have gotten the ideas for the big ones. Like that is <laughs> that is just a perfect like line. I you know I I don't always love people just playing unbelievably stupid in movies but something about her brightness here just makes what could be just a completely absurdist pointless line just absolutely sing i love the delivery of that line and it's just a really good gag uh
0: quick aside i found it's because of vulture but if anyone wants to look up jennifer coolidge's commencement address to emerson college from this year in which she delivers a uh variation on the uh famous speech from the count of monte cristo it is uh well worth your time <laughs>
4: Oh my god. Oh, oh yeah. God. Oh I forgot. Yes. I love Jennifer uh, Coolidge. Yes, awesome. <laughs> I really do
3: love her. Well, I like how this whole troupe sticks together from movie to movie and there and finds roles for everyone. I mean there there's no you know, the film could have been just fine without Fred Willard, but Fred Willard is unbelievably great and funny in this movie. And so there's a part for what, him. What, what, what's, it, what's
4: his catchphrase? I can't
2: remember. <laughs> he's, he's got like eight of them, and they're all hilarious. I'm just setting
3: Scott up What <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What uh, the? What are some of the other ones?
2: I can't do my work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he's,
2: I, think it, I, I don't think so.
0: <laughs> in this <laughs> and uh, Best in Show, and then Waiting for Guffman I haven't seen in a while, but presumably there too. I mean, he's... Oh, wait, best and show he comes in and and just find Kills another him. groove yeah just yeah. just like here's another gear for this movie and, and mm-hmm. but like he's just like the person you can kind of just be just funny i mean just there's no, nothing else like this is this is someone who's just going to kill it every time he opens his mouth <laughs> and sometimes when he doesn't
2: maybe it just comes down to a recognition thing because fred willard is also playing like a very big very over the top very sticky character here and i love every minute of it but I've just met so many people exactly like that. I've met promoters. I've met salesmen. Just that kind of like glad handing, cannot stop talking long enough to breathe, let alone to listen to anything you might say. Thinks he's hilarious, but is also kind of uncomfortable. And is simultaneously making just like the worst, most offensive jokes, like that exact type of person I feel like I've met before. And that's part of what makes him so funny is that sense of recognition, that self aggrandizement that comes with a fake humility, that sexual leering that also comes with like a self effacing, like, no offense ladies Uh, like every every Uh, part of the striving against his own personality that he does is recognizable to me in a way that the eugene levy's character isn't and since you guys like spent more time with somebody like that or spent more time watching or in the headspace of somebody like that maybe it just comes down to eugene levy doesn't feel real to me because i haven't encountered as much of that character and he does to you because you have
0: so we kind of already started down this road, but I do want to like let's leaving, leaving O'Hara behind. Let's let's talk about some of the other favorite performances in this film, which is full of, of them. I always, uh, Parker Posey. I, I don't. She's yep. so funny in these movies, and also kind of tragic in this one as well. Like this member of the perpetually smiling uh, new Main Street singers, with this. If you see glimpses of her street kid past, and it's just. I mean, it's sad, but it's, it just makes it that much funnier too.
4: I mean Bob Balaban is my anxious king. Sure. <laughs> I, 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 I relate to him on a deep level here. So there, there's your, your your recognition you were talking about, Tasha. But the uh him him opening with the warning about the low hanging vines and the floral arrangements and you know, every everything <laughs> Tasha mentioned about the the stage production sequence. Like I just I feel like Bob Balaban has for me anyway, the most like laugh out loud lines in this movie.
2: Is it okay to have a representation of a thing next to an actual thing? <laughs> I don't have time to explain stagecraft 101 to you. Yeah, Bob Balaban, I think more than than any other single player might sum up what's funny about Christopher Guest movies, because he he just so perfectly nails that... That sense of of tiny self importance mixed with like anxiety that you might never get past like whatever tiny scrap of fame or success you might have like that ineffectual impotent like little raging tyrant kind of character that he almost always seems to play is just. Uh, the Again, maybe maybe there's more to this than I'm thinking about. Maybe there's a lot more in Christopher Guest movies that's just characters that are divided against themselves and, and have this kind of like interior struggle going on. Because uh, uh, John Michael Higgins' character certainly has that going on. And uh, Parker Posey's character, I would say, does as well. Like putting on this, this big, bright, perfect girl kind of face when she's got like all of this sad, depressive uh, past that she's trying to overcome. But Bob Balaban just kind of like sums it up. He's he's officious, uh, yet he's ineffectual. He's he's nervous, yet he wants to be in charge of everything. It's just there's so much going on in these like uh, tiny little tiny little gripe-y characters.
3: But he also gets like a character defining moment right away when he talks about uh, playing polo on Shetland ponies <laughs> <laughs> because and it's, the uh... chess helmet,
4: the chess helmet, <laughs> the chess helmet
3: exactly right. It's just it's just, it's just you're, when you're parents are really nervous that anything at all is going to happen to you. I don't know. I think that that is, you know, that stays with you and that that tells you how the child became the father of the man. Yeah, I, I, there's so many performances here I love. I mean, Willard is incredible. Everything he does in the film is funny. There's a bit... In fact, maybe the funniest bit to me is not necessarily... Most of it's behind, stuff behind a desk, but there's this one scene where he just drifts into frame. He just drifts there. You don't even expect him to go in there. <laughs> and it's, just, it's just, just seeing him just like that expression on his face always kind of like bright and smiley and kind of dumb just kind of floating through the the frame it's just so good so he's good and and um and jane lynch is just somebody who always makes me laugh a lot no matter what she does she's just really funny uh she's funny in uh party down and in in 40 year old version and here and she just has this kind of swagger this confidence that she carries through her performances and there's always this kind of like sexual element to them and it's just it, it, i find it funny every time so that's a good performance too but i, I really you know i would also to say it, in
2: glee like she was she was in a different tv show than everybody else in glee but she was always mm-hmm. still a, a high spot like a, a bright spot for that show even when they kind of like lost the plot of her character like lost the framework for that show that would have made her character make any sense she just kind of came in and did the shtick that she was doing and it it always worked for me
0: so we've talked least about the folksmen who yeah I, 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 I wanted That's, to uh, we were getting there
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say
4: the same thing like i feel like we're giving short shrift to uh sheer and and guests themselves because they are kind of the comedic backbone i guess of this
0: I think it's also the most understated element of the film I mean, it's it's really all about them kind of getting to know each other again through playing together and like all of the all, you know they have no like blow ups, but they're all like there are all these like little disagreements about change uh, the direction of the band and it's all like kind of very uh cordial but there there is a little bit of tension there um and I don't know there's just those three together are just kind of you know there's a lot of history there and it's kind of naturally magnetic to watch them together, but it's also great to see them play. I mean, there are all really good musicians and they've really given a, th- a lot of thoughts to these songs and like how these characters might've, li- you know, have lived over the years as well.
4: Also, Harry Shearer's beard is a character yeah. unto itself <laughs> and it makes I me that physically, physically uncomfortable
2: well. to look at. <laughs> I just like how much, how much of this movie was just beard design for yeah. Harry Shearer the and little Willard. shrug
3: he gives to at eat at Edith joe's <laughs> when he when he gets the uh, <laughs> when uh he gets that last last part r- wrong and has to kind of give give a little look to the audience it's just it's so it's so funny
2: and the whole like skeletons of quinto uh vamping scene where mitch has disappeared and they're they're just trying to like talk their way out of things like like they end up like on a ten-minute intro for a song. They don't actually sing.
1: It, just everything about that <laughs> feels great. It's yeah, like their a jazz relationship,
2: <laughs> their relationship just has such a lived-in feel. They all feel like comfortable middle-aged dads kind of have like hanging out in the barbecue on the weekend. There's a there's a king of the hill standing Mm -hmm. behind the fence in the alleyway drinking beer kind of feeling to those those performances. But at the same time, they do come across as people who are serious about their music and serious about their reputation and concerned about the state of the industry and concerned about other people who are playing folk in ways that they disapprove of. There's a, a lot layered in there. But I, it really all comes down to that. Uh, the, these records didn't have holes punched in them, and they just teeter on the spindle. <laughs> oh, like man. the dynamic of that comic scene is just such a perfect encapsulation of what improv is supposed to be, mm-hmm. where they're all just like yes, anding each other seamlessly, like like fluidly, calmly. Like oh yeah, they no, but they were really good records. Other than that,
3: <laughs> it's such a callback to Spinal Tap too. That specific scene of what happens when you know the distribution starts to lag and you're not as important and uh and and you know it reminds me of paul schaefer in <laughs> his spinal tap saying kick my ass do you remember that when yep. uh when uh, some some uh, signing goes uh, horribly awry it's that kind of like level where it's just like you've been relegated to this horrible side label where they don't even punch holes in the records that's just good insight into uh the business i think
2: i also just really love the the car scene where where guest is talking about how well yes he has a roadmap it's just not in the car <laughs> and and mckean is like were you were you planning to study it later like academically uh there's just there's a a sense to their bantery back and forth that feels that very natural like the exactly how exactly the kind of thing you get out of like old friends who have known each other forever, but also are kind of forced together by the circumstances of having done this project together and they all still aggravate each other a little bit.
0: It ends with them still together. Uh, they're they're the you know this has turned into a semi permanent reunion for them as well. Uh, we should talk about the final gag, uh, just which mm. I think it's not aged all that well, just because it's it, it's not yeah I know <laughs> nope. the gag is, is, is Harry Shearer's character is has uh, has transitioned uh, into a woman, and the, you know that's kind of the gag in itself. I don't think there's any ill intent there, but it it kind of speaks to how uh attitudes have uh, and awareness have, have changed so much over the last seventeen years.
2: Yeah, I guess the positive thing about it is that it's not cheap. Like mm-hmm. they they don't they don't use the T word. They don't do a bunch of gay panic humor. They don't like overstate it. But the joke really is he transitioned. Like that's that's the a hundred percent of the gag there. Well, the and, other
3: way, the, and that he has a deep voice.
2: Yeah, I think I think it could
4: have worked better if it didn't go to the bass voice.
2: Um, really? Because I, I think if he'd been like trying to put on a falsetto, uh,
4: oh. it would have been even
2: more uncomfortable than it already is. And it's, it's pretty uncomfortable.
4: But I mean, like changing your voice is a big part of transition for, mm. for a lot of trans women and voice training. And I feel like by doing the, oh, he's still doing this deep bass voice, it turns it into a man in a dress gag instead of... Yes, I am a woman or I've always been a woman. And now I'm expressing that, which is kind of the the language in the scene directly before that. So there's just, there's
2: yeah. just the hint of like a, a sort of modern awareness about about the language and the fact that his friends are clearly uncomfortable, but trying to be supportive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they haven't gotten to a place of acceptance yet, but they're not being insulting about it. But then the context that it's in, if nothing else, the fact that it really doesn't go anywhere uh, except the visual and the context that it's in with the same kind of like straight-faced, you know, here are my beliefs uh, kind of monologue presentation, it, it exactly matches Higgins and Lynch talking about their their magical color religion. I, I feel like even though sort of the language is is kind of appropriate language more appropriate language than you would expect from something this dated it's still being contextualized in the same sort of way as like oh look at their wacky beliefs they put on wizard hats and and worship color oh look at his wacky beliefs like he thinks that he's a woman like if it wasn't for the rest of that movie that scene wouldn't play as as mocking because it's played so in such a straight-faced way but the movie is mocking so many other things that are played in that exact same straight-faced way and that's part of what makes it uncomfortable i
4: think also just because it's it's the button you know it's it's the very end so the assumption is like oh this is a laugh line we're ending on a laugh and therefore the laugh is
2: oh he has a deep voice he's a man in a dress so I, I think it may be significant that we're all referring to him as him. Right. Uh, because <laughs> I, I just I don't think any of us are really accepting the reality of him as tr- portraying a trans character as opposed to doing uh, like a Monty Python gag, I it
0: guess. It doesn't feel like a fully realized or fully thought through element of the film. But I, I th- again, I don't think there's any ill intent behind it, but it yeah. is, 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 is an example of how things can uh, look a little different as, yeah. as, uh, as the years go by.
4: Certainly not the first or last film to go to that well.
0: All right. Well, that's the end of the movie, and we can just make it the end of our discussion. But we'll be talking about it more next week when we talk about Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga. We'll be right back after the break with feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their response to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Uh, We went a little off format for an episode dedicated to Studio Ghibli. Uh, Jenny, you've got a letter about that. You want to share that one?
4: Sure. Jeff writes, I appreciated your ending comments where you paid brief tribute to Pompoco and Grave of the Fireflies. If I were to guess the Ghibli films four Western critics would talk about, they'd be Spirited Away, Totoro, Mononoke, and Kiki sorry to call you out. I don't fault you, as your listening audience probably needs to hear about one or more of those staples, but for me it was refreshing to hear a critic bring up Takahata's lesser-discussed gems. I submit that Grave is not only Ghibli's best film, but it's arguably the best animated film of all time. I can count on one hand the number of animated movies that stirred both my heart and mind that much. This brings me to a point which you might weigh in on. Having lived in Japan, I find it apparent that Takahata's films are made much more specifically for Japanese audiences. Not only do they load up on inside cultural references that are probably not apparent to Western audiences, but the significance of the behaviors and motivations of the characters are probably largely much less identifiable and affecting to non-Japanese viewers, whereas most of Miyazaki's films are well-known and loved by Western audiences, which some attribute to the universal appeal of the films. My question is if it's actually universality that Western audiences respond to, or if they are unconsciously responding more to seeing familiar cultural elements reflected back at them. Miyazaki's films tend to draw heavily on Western architecture, clothing style, story structure, and even his characters' facial characteristics. With the exception of his last film, they could all easily be European fairy tales, and even The Wind Rises is rather reverent of Germany. Do you think Western audiences are unconsciously biased against evaluating Takahata's films fairly? I include myself in this somewhat my letterbox list has mostly Miyazaki films at the top.
2: I think that there's some truth to that. And I I also admit, it's like a little hard for me to judge what I'm missing in Takahata's films, because I don't have the the cultural knowledge to get the references, because if I'm not getting the references that I don't know that I'm missing the references. But when we did Ghibli Week at Polygon, I specifically assigned an animation expert that I had a lot of respect for to write about why Takahata's films don't get as much respect and and why they should. That just seemed like a, a no-brainer that I wanted somebody with a lot of experience to explore. And we talked a lot about it beforehand. And And part of it, I'm convinced, is just Miyazaki's cover uh different tones and somewhat different styles but there's a commonality between them in the way they handle fantasy in the way he designs his main characters in the the lush backdrops you have a little more of a sense of knowing what you're getting going into a miyazaki film Takahato was a relentless experimenter. Uh, You look at Grave of the Fireflies and you see an early Ghibli film. You look at My Neighbor the Yamadas and you see something designed entirely different. You look at uh, Tale of Princess Cayuga and you see something, again, visually entirely different. He was playing around, like uh, watch Pompako and and look at the animation styles shifting radically back and forth between realism and, and super cartoony animation. Takahato was just much more dedicated to playing with the form and and playing with style. And as a result he didn't have the same kind of uh, visual or tonal signature that people associate with Miyazaki. I do think that there's maybe more Accessibility in Miyazaki's films, yes, in part because of the European elements, but also just because they're fantasy. If you know fairy tales, you can grasp the basic plot of Spirited Away, even if not all elements of how a bathhouse is run are familiar. You can grasp the the basic concept of little kids interacting with fantasy creatures in My Neighbor Tortoro, even if you don't know about like the tra- tradition of black soots or uh, what a giant tree festooned with paper garlands means. So I do think that there are elements of Miyazaki that are a little harder to grasp for a Western audience, but an awful lot of them are, are overruled by kind of the big bright emotions. And I feel like Takahata's emotions are also a lot more complicated, a lot, in many ways, richer and more aimed at adults than a lot of what Miyazaki does.
4: Yeah, I find it interesting that, you know, Disney is the vector for Ghibli in, in America for, for a lot of people. And the fact that Americans especially associate Ghibli with Miyazaki, specifically the same way that Disney is associated with Walt Disney. And I think like, maybe the idea of a, you know, a single creator is just kind of appealing in terms of like wrapping your head around any sort of canon of of work. And as we talked about a lot in that film, like Miyazaki has a lot of hallmarks that pop up in, in all of his films. And I think that makes it easier for audiences, particularly those who are just kind of wading into to Ghibli to kind of connect this into a greater whole you know which i think maybe makes them a little easier to understand as opposed to the experimentation you're talking about with with takahadas and you know his films are all very different and you would only associate them with ghibli if you are very well versed in ghibli to begin with if that makes sense
2: Oh, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just two podcasts ago that somebody asked specifically about directors who aren't recognized as auteurs. Mm -hmm. And uh, Takahata would certainly fit the bill. Like he was an auteur in the sense that all of his films were characterized by precision. Miyazaki said that uh, Takahata was like even more of an obsessive than Miyazaki himself was, which is really saying something. But they don't have that auteurist like easy, visible, visual, or or tonal connection that Miyazaki's films have.
0: We also received a really uh, interesting and engaging voicemail from Ben in Houston about our Studio Ghibli episode, which we will now play.
1: Hey, Next Picture Shows. This is Ben Hava from Houston, Texas, calling in for your Castle in the Sky episode. Um, really great episode. Really appreciate it. One thing I wanted to mention that you guys didn't seem to know, which is unfortunate because a lot of people don't seem to know this. Uh, I only discovered it. An accident is that the Castle in the Sky dub is really the only Disney dub that really alters the film itself in a really unfortunate ways. Um, namely, they, um, one, age up the characters, but two, they add a bunch of dialogue that is not in the original film at all. So when Scott was complaining about it feeling busy or loud, that's unfortunately a case of the Disney dub. Um, you can compare them. Contrast them, particularly in the action scenes. This is where I feel it is most disastrous. Um, I discovered this from a DVD I had where I was watching it. Um, I prefer subs, and I was watching it, and there was all this dialogue. And I was like, this is – no one's talking. Where's all this from? And I realized it's all from the English dub. They added all this dialogue because they thought people would get bored. And it's this very stupid old idea that kids can't just watch silence. Uh thankfully most of the Disney dubs since have been better, but for some reason they've never gone back and changed it, partially because obviously they have a good voice cast and they don't want to just throw it in the trash, but it really bothers me. Um the the advantage though of the dub is that actually the score was uh increased. Um the original score was only about thirty minutes and they made it a full ninety minute score. So some people have actually combined the two. They have the original subversion but with the extended um, uh, score, which is really quite quite cool, but unfortunately obviously not available on HBO Max. So I was always a sub-only person for a long time, but um, now that I date someone who is dyslexic and has a very tough time for him to read uh, subtitles, uh, we watch a lot of dubs, and, and I think most of them are pretty good. Uh, but that is the one I have to say, please. Please watch it subtitled if you can because it is a real unfortunate, uh, choice. And I think the movie works so, so much better in the subtitled form. And so I, I don't want to say Scott, watch it again right now, but maybe at some point watch it again subtitled because I think it plays so much better. Uh, so thank you for, uh, doing this. Oh, and, uh, one last thing. If you get the chance, uh, Google The uh, Warriors of the Wind, I believe it is called. Uh, This is the first ever dubbed Miyazaki film. It was a dub of Nausicaa, and it was horrendous, and it has maybe the funniest misleading cover I've ever seen for any VHS filmed. I
2: I thought we had mentioned Warriors of the Wind in passing. Honestly, that week I recorded two different uh, podcasts about Studio Ghibli and I wrote and edited a ton about it and it's it's all blurred together but I was always really sad that I didn't see Warriors of the Wind because I spent most of my early like Ghibli discovering years uh reading rants about how how terrible it was uh, the rewrite the cuts the uh, complete mangling of the story and I'm still very curious that said, I had never really like looked carefully at the poster or or box of the art until somebody wrote about it for us. And I, and I went in and looked at it, and it's fabulous. I highly recommend looking it up. It's got a uh like a murderous robot and a bunch of of male badasses, none of whom are in the film. Like none of these characters actually exist in any way in the movie. And then Nausica herself, who appears to be uh, maybe just on the cusp of puberty in the film is presented as this like I don't know like mid 20s like very busty woman in <laughs> a very at very short now. skirt yeah. <laughs> in off in the background it's hilarious I mean I'd, I'd be mad if I rented the movie expecting that movie and got what it what, what was actually in there instead but like looking back on it from the safe place of of knowing the original film that is a fantastically hilarious cover.
4: Uh, scott what do you think are you gonna go back and revisit uh <laughs> i
3: feel i definitely feel the like it, it, the, what ben is saying is uh making me think that i i missed out on the experience that i wanted from the movie which did seem very busy and, and, and loud and and the stuff that i loved in the film of uh, the silences and, and and just kind of the quieter sequences which is what i l- respond to in miyazaki's work in general, so I'd like to do it. I, I think it's been all dubs over subs for me because I've been watching these films with my children, and so they they would rather hear the voices than read subtitles. I need to getting them into subtitles is going to be a process and i'm not not ready quite ready to start that process just just
4: force them they'll love it kids love to be forced to just start with yeah
3: we'll start with wings of desire i think i started uh, um so yeah i don't i'm encouraged that there's a version of this film out there that i might appreciate more and and the more we discussed castle in the sky the more i felt like i'd probably missed the boat a bit on it because um (laughs) you all liked it so much and uh you know it's kind of make me doubt my own reaction to it
2: did you watch it on HBO or did yeah, you HBO Max. have a D? Yeah. I needed to I need to go back. I, I didn't. I, I watched it on a, a physical DVD that I actually had uh, from when it came out via Disney. And I had just assumed that the version on HBO Max was gonna be uh, a G Kids redub. So if it's if it's the Disney version, I'm actually a little oh. surprised at that. No,
3: I think it may be the G Kids I didn't know there was a G Kids redub.
2: Hmm. I, I as I say, I'm assuming it was think, that. I don't know I, about that. I don't know for a fact that it one even exists.
3: Yeah. Typically, though, we'll they
2: uh, they they did their own translations and their own dubs. It was just sort of part of their kind of uh, commitment to doing it right, which, as opposed to uh, Disney's commitment to doing it whatever way they thought would make the most money. But yeah, yeah I I actually like watching the the Disney version. I had the subtitles for the dub on and then was like like listening to the it, it, it's it's weird i was watching the subtitles for the dub version the dub script and listening to the the japanese version so it was very clear when there was a lot of dialogue going on and uh there, like nobody's mouth was moving and there there is quite a lot of it in the film it's jarring to be honest
0: So I guess our conclusion is there's no wrong way to watch Castle in the Sky, but some (laughs) ways are more right than others. Okay, well, we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If if you feel so inclined, we may feature your response in a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll consider the hopes and dreams of a musical act trying to make it big against some stiff competition from far and wide when we discuss Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net, Follow us at facebook.com slash show and follow us on Twitter at at pod. so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to spend some time witnessing the awesome and vibratory power of color. It's lighting up this mighty wind that's blowing everywhere. Oh, a mighty wind's a-blowing, it's kicking
3: up the sand. It's blowing out a message to every woman, trial, and man. Yes,
0: some mighty winds are blowing across the land and across the sea. It's blowing peace and freedom. It's blowing equality.